0: Welcome back to another episode of the Strength and Speed Podcast. I'm your host, Mudgear Hannibal Race Pro and Strength and Speed owner, Evan Preparis. Got a couple guests with me on the line today to talk about World's Toughest Mudder and Ultra OCR. Uh, let's introduce one of them first. We got Miranda Huber from the Mudgear Hannibal Race Pro team. Miranda, welcome.
1: Thanks, Evan. Glad to be here.
0: And today's episode is brought to you by Aurora. Aurora Heated Apparel. It's electronically heated jackets, vests, gloves, etc. cetera. Um, Miranda was just in a whole bunch of their promotional stuff, uh, sporting her jacket and her mudgear pants. So Miranda, what are your thoughts on Aurora?
1: Yeah, I love Aurora. I've got their fleece jacket. I've got their, uh, windbreaker type jacket. I also have their traditional heated jacket. So nice to have a variety and yeah, they're amazing. Always wear them to any cold morning races that I have. And then they're perfect for post race as well, or Um, I mean, it's just a heated jacket, right? So any experience where you're going to be cold, it's perfect. You've got that nice, toasty, warm feeling um, all around in the jacket. So it's awesome.
0: Absolutely. And for those headed to toughest world's toughest, great product for pre post race and great product you can leave with your pit, whether you get them their own or they just borrow yours during the 24 hour long race. So in addition to Miranda on the podcast, well, I'm going to drop a discount link in the show notes below. Anyone who's looking to order that also a discount link for Mudgear, since we mentioned them as well. Ultra OCR man would be a discount code there. That will be in the show notes. Let's bring on our other guests, AC Hell. AC, welcome. Thank you. Good to hear y'all. Yeah, we've had AC on that podcast a couple of times before. Strength and speed guy. Uh Participated in Last Man Standing Ultra or helped out with that and uh regular in the Midwest OCR scene out here.
2: Yep. Yeah. And also pitting for Miranda on this. So
0: Yep. And that is it's why a, we have him. <laughs> So we wanted to bring Miranda Miranda's an experienced OCR athlete. Right, uh I don't know how many podiums you have, a lot. You've been racing for a while. Bunch of Conquer the Gauntlet wins. Uh you won Conquer the Gauntlet this year. That was a big win um bunch uh i think it's won one savage race been on the podium a couple times there right yep do we have a what's your total do we know of total podium count i know you're you i'm
1: not yeah i'm not sure that's a good question it's at least 30
0: yeah Been, been racing around for a while and um some impressive results usually on the more technical courses with the harder obstacles but anyway, sure. she's, go- she's going to World's Toughest Mudder for the first time. So experienced opera- o- obstacle course <laughs> racer, but not an experienced World's Toughest Mudder, which uh, World's Toughest Mudder specifically is almost it's almost on the verge of being a different sport. It's so complex. Um, it's almost like adventure racing-ish. Uh, so we wanted to bring her on along with her pick crew, AC Hale on, and just kind of we're just going to do some q and uh, I don't know what the questions are. We're going to pick my brain and kind of talk about strategy and pacing and gear and all that good stuff. Um, so I guess let's start it off with Miranda. Uh, one, what was what made you decide to sign up this year after being involved in OCR for so many years?
1: Uh, so World's Toughest is one of those races that kind of everybody talks about, everybody knows about it. And I listened to a podcast this week or last week that talked about how the like the Spartan and the Tough Mudder communities are two completely different sets of athletes. And I thought it was interesting they brought that, and they always thought it was like, oh, that's just something they say. That's not true. But then they attended something or it just became a lot more obvious that that was the truth, right? And then I think it's similar where, you know, a lot of my Spartan comes around me more than Tough Mudder does. So that's kind of where my background comes from and the races I do more. I don't do a lot of Tough Mudders. But with that in mind, people, everybody, regardless of what type of OCR you're into, everybody knows about World's Toughest. Um, So it's been a bucket list race of mine for a few years. Um, it's always one of, one of those things that'd be like, wow, it'd be really cool to do that one day. So last year when they announced that it would be in Texas, um, you know, I looked it up and it's about, about an hour from my house, the venue. So, you can't really pass up on that offer. So something that's kind of prevented me from ever being realistically interested in the past is that it's, it's a lot to deal with, you know, you you need a rental car, but it needs to be a big rental car, you might need to fly with a lot of equipment. Mm -hmm. Um, So they're like, logistically, it is challenging to attend one that is far away. So when they come to Texas, it was kind of like, Oh um, man I have to take this opportunity. whether I feel like I'm one hundred percent prepared or not. This is the time to try it,
0: yeah, it's hard to pass up a world championship event that's an hour from your house and uh, kind of like a bucket list type event. So understandable. Um, so let's either either give me some goals or you can either that or just jump in with the questions,, uh, kind of what your concerns uh, expectations are going into the event,
1: yeah, so, I have a few things to talk about. I have some ideas for where we can start. And then I do have some more specific questions. So I'll make it a little personal. But um, as like a starting point, my goal is about, about 50 miles. Um, I have also done ultras before. So this, you know, ultra OCR isn't brand new to me. I've also done Conquer the Gauntlet Continuum, which is a multi-lap of their Uh, their course. So I've done five laps on a CTG course. So I'm no newbie to ultra OCR, although I've never done 24 hours. Um, I also DNF'd a hundred miler, but I made it 70 miles and I made it 25 hours before I reached that point. So that makes me feel a little more comfortable that I have something in the background, at least you know, a little bit of experience for, um, like feeling and being on my feet for that long. Now I know world stuff is a whole different thing as far as like going in and out of water and, uh, wearing a wetsuit and going through obstacles is way tougher than just running for 24 hours. So a lot of my questions are kind of related to that, but I did want to talk about my goals, um, and I'm not trying to like selfishly make it so focused on me. I think that the goals that I have are, um, they're not super high. So Evan, I know your goal is typically hundred miles. And I think that the, you know, who is that going to apply to? Yeah. 5% of the racing community. Um, my goals are a a lot more realistic for maybe like 60% of the people that are going to attend world's toughest aim for 50 miles. So, Uh, I think a lot of people have that goal, but I have a couple kind of smaller goals as well. Or just, um, I can't remember how you word it in your book. So I have been reading the Ultra OCR Bible that Evan wrote. Um, So you talk in there about the multi-leveled goals. That way, if your A goal isn't working out, you have something to kind of fall back on. So prime goal is to make it the full 24 hours. I would also like to get 50 miles, but I think regardless of mileage, you know, I guess I made two different categories. I made time goals and I made distance goals. Do you do something similar? Or I guess I feel like I already know the answer to that. You're to you. You're always going to do the full 24. That's never a question.
0: Right. Yeah. Uh, For people who have never done it before, and especially if uh, your resume is a little bit deeper for OCR than most people, but, you know, people who've never done it before, the the main goal I think always should just be, be make it on the course all twenty four hours. Don't sit in the pit for any kind of extended period of time besides changing clothes. Uh that being said, I think you nailed it as far as like you want tiered goals. So as things as you start missing goals, you have things to fall back and focus on, right? So like you said, hundred miles is usually one of my goals. I also have a goal, you know, top five, which I think the highest placement I've got is sixth. Um, so I also have a goal of top ten. Um, my like kind of backup Backup, backup goal is like 75 miles, right? Because they're offering belt buckles for 75 this year, right? So that's on the table. So as things don't quite pan out, I just shift down, right? And and if my placement's not looking too good, I, I switch over from overall placement and I start focusing on age group placement, right? So in uh, two years ago, or I think it was, I was more concerned. I was like in the top 10. I would think I was like between eight and 10. And I, I was like, I feel, I feel like I can hold it. Uh, let me start focusing on age group placement and kind of see if I can use that age group energy and that quote unquote podium age group energy to like pull out a little bit more of a performance for myself. Um, so yes, tiered goals. Um, I think I answered the question in a round. Yeah.
1: So I, yeah, I guess I have a more specific question about that. So my concern with the different tiered goals, right? If my first goal is make it 24, second goal is make it 50, third goal is make it 30 or make it to midnight. Um, how do you kind of prevent yourself from making your lowest level goal and then, yeah, and then settling for that?
0: Uh, good question. (laughs) <laughs> to me, that, the the highest level goal is always the one I really, I want the most. So right. you know, given the opportunity between suffering and, and pushing a little bit further, I'm going to, I'm going to choose towards the highest level goal. Usually it's when I know something is out of reach, right? Like, you know, it's 75% of the way through the race and I'm uh, clearly not on pace and I'm walking at that point and I'm not on pace to hit a hundred miles, right? Like, obviously that's not going to happen. Like could I theoretically suddenly start running the last 25 miles and pull it out? I theoretically, yes. But, you know, if you haven't walked in the last two laps, then you're probably not going to suddenly break into a jog for the last, uh, couple hours. So,
1: yeah. Yeah. It's a hard question. Um, yeah, I just felt a little, it feels challenging to make that like setting those tiered goals, but also not really trying really hard not to allow yourself to settle for those. So
0: yeah. And I um, usually, when, when I like, I don't, I don't actually write them down on paper. So that, that might help you or it may help some people. Mm, okay. But in in my mind, I put the hardest goal first and then stagger them the opposite way. Right. So like, you know, podium overall, top five overall, uh, you know, a hundred miles, you know, uh, <clears throat> et cetera. Top 10 overall age group, win, age group podium, et cetera. And like, That's how I kind of list them in my mind more than, uh, it's just, you know, if it's your first one, if you make it all 24 hours on the course, to me, that's a win, regardless of how far you go. Right. Cause it, what, what takes most people out and what makes people, most people miss their goals is physically spending too much time in the pit, you know? And if you go out there and spend all 24 hours on course moving forward, uh, typically you will hit above 50. You just have to move forward, you know, can't be sitting taking 30 minute pit breaks and and all that nonsense. Right. Like always move forward. If you're if you're not moving forward, you're not you're not gaining ground. Right.
1: For sure. Yeah. So one of the issues I had with my hundred miler attempt was I, I sat in the pit a long time. Um, but that's cause my feet were hurting me, but really then you get back up and within five minutes, your feet are hurting again. So there's really no point. You're not really, you're getting very temporary relief for no reason. And it set me behind pace, which is why I ended up dropping is because kind of like you were saying, by the time I hit 70, it was like, realistically, there's no way for me to hit hundred. I'd have to run my next three laps faster than my first lap. And that's not yeah. going to happen. Right, so yeah, right. that that's my goal is to, you know, not sit down. I don't want to sit down. I'm hoping AC will push me. That's going to be his job, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, try not to sit down and, unless I'm, you know, if I'm eating or like a big meal or it's a change in wetsuit or something like that, then, you know, there's a couple like leeways to that. But yeah, so mileage goal is kind of like, I don't really care too much about mileage since I've not hit anything like that and i'm not going to pr my distance altogether but yeah i do want to go the full 24 hours kind of another goal is um to count as a finisher you have to finish a lap after 7 a.m but that means that you could walk across the line at 701 you count as a finisher and i've also heard and seen that a lot of people stop (laughs) at that point because now they count
0: correct that is people do do that Yep.
1: but there are still four hours left in the race yeah um so my kind of next goal is obviously go for 24, but like, how do you make that more specific? Because, um, if you finish a lap at 10 59, you can start a lap at 11, but can you finish in an hour and a half? So it kind of depends on like, how long did your last lap take? Did it take Correct. you three hours? Correct. Well, yeah. then there's no point to go out for another, um, so I told AC because I'm really relying on him. We're going to get together and we're going to write down some things on like, here's my rules for myself that I need you to be the enforcer. Um, and he that's kind of one of the reasons I picked him is because I know he'll be able to kind of push me at the right level. But I would like to do a lap after 7 a.m. So nice. that's kind of my next goal to be a little more specific. Finish a lap after then go out for one more. Um, so, yeah, and, those and are my- kind of some of my.
0: My personal rule is always, if there's t- room for, if there's time for one more lap, and like you said, my last lap shows that it's physically possible. You, I always go out, always. It's not like, oh, well, what what, what if I put, always go out 100%. You take the decision out of, out of your hands, right? Because if I go in there like, oh, well, maybe I'll do another one and maybe it'll move me up a placement, maybe it won't, the answer is going to be no. Because after running for 20 <laughs> plus hours, it's you're a lot like you know what we should do run a five mile tough mutter. No one's like that's a great <laughs> idea. So make that decision ahead of time. Tell your pit crew now, and stick to that plan. Right, like that's not it's not an it's not an option at that point. It's you you have to go back out. And I know, uh, like one, one of our teammates Jenny ended up not going back out for a lap in uh, what was it Minnesota, and dropped uh, went from first to third because the two girls made it with, you know. I mean, they, they crossed the finish line, I think was like less than five minutes, uh, before the buzzer. So,
1: you know, <clears> thing. <throat> yeah. So I've had that happen at, a kind of something similar happened at conquer the gauntlet continuum where, um, there was kind of, I think there were like 10 more minutes to start another lap or something. And there was a girl, it was, um, Lisa Nondorf was closely behind me and, um, actually maybe there were 30 minutes left to start a lap and I really didn't want to. And I was like, Oh, well, what, how does she look like? Do you're you right, think right. she's going to do another lap? And I was kind of waiting to decide based on like what feedback I got from her experience on the course. And they were like, she says she's going. So I just went, but it's like, you, you're not going to know what the competition's going to do. So if you have time, just do it. So that was kind and, of a good experience for me is that you're never going to want to, you just have to.
0: And, and no one wants to hear in the, post-race Facebook comments like, oh, I did 65, but I could have done 70. It's like, <laughs> well, then you couldn't have done 70 because you didn't, right? Like,
1: right, yeah. No, I
0: could have. Mental mental ability and mental <clears> strength <throat> is part of getting the mileage, right? Just because you physically had more time to do more mileage. If you don't go back out, you can't, that doesn't count. It doesn't, cl- you can't claim that, right? That is, it's yeah. like claiming penalty miles. Like no one cares how many penalty miles you ran. That's not a, it's not like I did, you know, Sixty miles plus ten penalty miles. It's like, well, then you should be better at obstacles. That's part of the sport. It's part of ultra distance obstacle course racing. Like no one, that that's your burden for failing obstacles. So, et cetera. All right, uh, keep moving. Let's keep on trucking. At ACA, if you have any questions as a member of the pit crew, uh, feel free to jump in. As as
2: I've got one. So, Evan, do you, does your crew do they know what your goals are before you go into it? I mean, you, uh, you said you don't write them down, but do you tell them?
0: No, uh, not necessarily because it's usually my dad and he's been with me for so long. He kind of, he knows what my goals are, right? Like he knows I'm I'm trying to win slash podium slash top 10 slash top five. And I'm, you know, trying to get a PR on mileage, whatever that may be, uh, right? So yeah. 90 is my personal PR as an individual. And I've hit that four times. So he, he knows that. Um, okay. And, the first year I had to be like, the very first year we did it, I was like, hey, if, I, if I'm feeling sorry for myself, like tell me to get back out there. <laughs> and later, my dad was like, I don't think I could have. <laughs> it's like, I don't, I don't know if I could tell him that. Um, but, you know, that was, it, it was just, I was delving into unknown uh, territory there. So I wasn't sure um, what my mental state would be at. But, you know, now that we've been racing together for long enough, he knows. I mean, yeah, it's most of it's not a decision. I just go until my body shuts down or I run out of time.
2: Yeah. And I, I think that's kind of similar to where Miranda and I are going to be at. Cause I pit for, on that, for that a hundred mile where she, you know, stopped at, yeah. at 70. And that was really the first time we'd ever spent any amount of time together. So, you know, it was hard to, you know, do I show tough love and make her get out there? And, you know, what kind of, I didn't know what she needed. And yeah. now, you know, we've been friends for a few years since then. So now, uh, I think we both have enough uh, relational rapport with each other that if she wants to start barking at me and cussing at me and being mean, it's not going to hurt my feelings. And at the same time, I feel like I can push her a little bit, you know, more than more than I probably could have back then. So yeah. it's, it's re- probably going to help be real helpful.
0: Yeah, you hit yeah the, I think it, it, it really depends on the person. And- yeah, it depends on the person. It depends on the relationship. So, like, there are some friends who they might need that tough love where it's like. Stop being a, you know, insert explicative um, word here and get get your ass back out there. And there are other people you're going to have to be a little more caring and kind for and be like, you're going to regret this tomorrow. Like, if you stop now, you will regret it. Like, I need you to, I need you to look at yourself, future self tomorrow and be like, be like, I, I gave up, you know, like you, you, uh, to me, like you make sure they make sure they know they, that's what they're doing. If. If you're mm-hmm. if you're a pit crew and your person wants to stop, be like, you're quitting. You understand that? Are you quitting? Like they need to they need to say that out loud to be like, i I'm quitting to they so they right. so it's not like, oh well I, again, I could have done more. No, but you couldn't have because you didn't. So.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I think it's uh you know, for a long time I tried really hard to convince my husband to come out and pit for me. And then I read your book and then I, you know, there was a series on youtube that i watched and they talked about how you know family members as pit crew aren't always a good idea and then actually it came up in conversation with some friends recently and you know my husband was thinking yeah if she in the middle of the night it's like 2 a.m and it's 30 degrees and she's talking about quitting you know i'm gonna be like yeah let's get out of here yeah uh, <laughs> you know that <laughs> it's true uh, it's true yeah man. yeah uh, so you want to be careful. And I've, I've read more about that now, like who you want to pit for you and having that rapport with them and understanding. So AC and I have had a lot of conversations going into this event about here's the kind of love that I need in those situations when I do want to quit. Like i I need the tough love, but like you said, Evan, like every person's different. So you might want to talk, have that conversation with your pit crew beforehand to say like, no, I need you to be a little under more understanding and loving and caring and um versus like i just need ac to be like you're not quitting it's not an option you're gonna keep going and he's gonna not let me sit down or you know whatever it is but a little more tough love to to and just not give me the option
0: um yeah i'm gonna
2: hide the chair before you get to the pit all
1: right perfect (laughs) Uh, our chairs are gone i don't know what happened All right. So I want to talk a little bit about uh, training. I guess, Evan, I have something I want to kind of pick your brain on, or I guess just like find your opinion on it. So um, a lot of of people listening to your podcast probably don't know. I don't know. Um, I broke my ankle about eight months ago. So I, for three months, did not, uh, for two months, I did not walk. I was in a boot on crutches, um, and then even for two more months, I was transitioning from not walking to transitioning uh, walking in a boot, and then finally walking without the boot, but all of that was a very slow transition. So only kind of returned to running, I don't know just a couple of months ago, so maybe I've got three months under my belt now where I'm back to running, so not a hundred percent feeling a little nervous going into a big twenty four hour obstacle race ultra oCR but and I'm also still having a little bit of trouble with impact, so again, this is getting a l- way more personable uh, than it probably needs to be, but I am gonna relate it to like the everyday person um so yeah, having Long runs on pavement or speed work, a lot of that is still causing um, some discomfort up my leg. Nothing that feels like it's like risking injury or anything. So I am continuing training. But the majority of my, uh, my runs at this point are only on trail. My leg really can't handle any pavement and um, not really doing much treadmill work either. But I, have, uh, I work from home uh 50% of the time so two days at at the office and two days at home recently a couple months ago i bought a standing desk and i bought a walking pad so i'm not sure if you've seen those kind of things but it's essentially just like a little mini treadmill that just goes under your desk there's no vertical portion to it so i also have like a you know a traditional nordic track treadmill that is like a full blown normal treadmill Um, so this walking pad is a lot smaller profile than that when I'm not using it I just slide it under my bed Um, so because I'm having trouble getting that kind of impact um, impact training on like just traditional running I'm doing a lot of walking so last week one day I walked seven hours while I was working so I guess I just wanted to like pick your brain on that. And also we talked about my goal is 50 miles, right? So you can do 50 miles. That's an average of three miles per hour if you don't spend any time in the pit. So that's a walking pace. So again, kind of like you said, Evan, that's an easily obtainable goal if you just keep moving. So something I struggled with in my previous ultras was just that pressure on the bottom of the foot, not even anything injury or muscle related. Um, So, yeah, I don't know. Just wanted to pick your brain on that and just make sure like you think that that's good training and not that it could kind of hurt me in the long run for for some reason that I'm not thinking about, I guess.
0: No, that's good training. You know, there's time on feet is something it's hard to mimic that without spending a lot (laughs) of time on feet. Right. So when guys get ready to go prepare for special forces assessment selection, there's a whole bunch of ruck marches that are in preparation for that. Uh, a lot of times, guys will be like, "Yeah, well, I skipped the last ruck, which was like an 18 miler or 16 miler, or, or both or something." Yeah, just guys didn't have time for it. It's like, no, no, that's the only two you should not skip because spending time on your feet, you just can't, you can't mimic it. So, with the with the amount of walking you will do at World's Toughest Mudder, I think that's absolutely great uh, supplemental training. Uh, I think you know that seven hours of walking uh, just by itself is again those are the exact muscle patterns you're going to be using as you walk through Tough Mudder. So, um, no issues there. I think it's a great, um, great option and a great way you've incorporated into your, uh, life when you may not have time or, you know, as someone who's recovering from an injury uh, the ability to get in those longer runs in at this point. So,
1: yeah, especially, yeah, you just kind of hit on that as well. The time that you can spend training, um, if I don't want to wake up, early to make a workout, I can make the workout walking all day long if I'm working from home that day. So that kind of enables me to spend more time with family and stuff as well. So right. I've really been enjoying that.
0: <clears throat> yeah, I know. Good. I like it. If anyone's doing something similar, but you know, maybe, uh, they were recording this probably around peak week for what should be peak week for most people, right? If, there's also ways you can make that even more challenging, right? So if you put on a weight vest, that'll add some extra weight. I don't know. If, Ooh, if, I like that. If your I have tread- not
1: been doing that. I love that feedback though. That would make it easy to make it harder.
0: If your treadmill goes in an incline, you know, you can do that as well. I don't know the little walking one. I, I imagine does it change in elevation or no?
1: No, it doesn't.
0: I didn't think so. Okay. So what you, but again, poor man's elevation, you can always, I don't, I don't know the layout of this thing, but you can always essentially put it on an angle, right? You can literally oh, yeah. put, put blocks on it to make it out elevation, right? So those are two options for increasing difficulty again if you're running out of time and uh time to train right so when i trained for ocr everest i uh, my treadmill only goes up to 15 percent uh so that's what i use primarily i don't have a high inclined treadmill and i wore a weight vest for a lot of my uphill walking because i was like well gotta make it harder somehow so that's what i did
1: <laughs> so. Yeah. I'm glad you brought those up because I feel like I never thought or considered those two things mainly probably cause I'm like working at the same time, but I don't know. I do that kind of thing normally, but I guess I've never physically put blocks under the treadmill or like considered that. So.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, again, <laughs> make sure I would make sure it's stable and all that stuff too. So I, um, you know, I I've seen people do that online. I have not actually put my treadmill on anything. Now you got to make sure it's obviously it's stable enough and it's not going to like yeah. rock off right for sure
1: Sarah. yeah don't sue evan when uh don't sue when it me falls. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's not my fault
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: okay i have a specific um i want to talk about wetsuit gear a little yeah. bit yeah <clears throat> that's a big part of it so i'm sure a lot of people are aware of that the wetsuits, big conversation so friend of mine jason dupree gave me some wetsuits um so that was really great he gave me a three millimeter shorty a three millimeter full. And a five meter millimeter full. So I have the two different options, three and five. We're in Texas. So I'm kind of hoping the five is kind of way out of need. And a couple of people have said that to me, like, oh, there's no way you'll ever need that. But you have to remember one thing is that I'm walking is my right. plan. Yeah. So I'm not going to be generating as much heat. So the people that are saying like, oh, you no way would ever need a five. Those people are a lot of the times are my friends that are running ultras Um, and they're like, and my thought is yes, if I could run the whole thing, I wouldn't need more than that, but you never know. Um, so I will have it. And also I didn't buy it. So that makes me feel better as well. Gotcha. Uh, okay. So yes, I have those three wetsuits already, which would be sufficient. I also ordered, um, Jenny and I talked about it a little bit. So I got a two piece wetsuit set. So I have a long sleeve wetsuit top and then long pant wetsuit bottoms. The top is a zip up and then I also got a vest. So I felt better kind of investing in those things for myself, especially knowing that I have those other wetsuits from a friend that I didn't buy. And I was already planning to buy the other, the vest and the two piece wetsuit. And I think the two piece wetsuit, um, I've read a lot and seen a lot about how you just have a lot more um, layering options if you have the two pieces and having the front zip um, is nice, and then the two pieces good for using the restroom because you can just pull that down yourself as opposed to like the wetsuits are just a lot more challenging to do that by yourself. So, um, okay, so here's my question related to that now, right? So I've got all this gear, all these wetsuits, all these options. Is there a point where too much is a bad thing? Because now my concern is I'm coming into the pit and I'm like, What do I want? Right. Oh, crap. I have like 10 different choices. Um, And the feedback I got from one person I asked that question to was, well, no, you have five miles along the course to make the decision of what you want. Um, So, yeah, what are your thoughts on that? Like having too much gear?
0: Uh, So if someone someone who's going out there and they're only goal is to survive and listen to all that and they're like panicking they're like i'm woefully underprepared look at all this stuff miranda has <laughs> sorry I'll, I'll say just get one long complete wetsuit five millimeter like there's very few people who go out there and they're like man i was too warm at world's toughest you know in the middle <laughs> of the night you can put it on too early and overheat during that lap uh, but usually you know there's the people who are, when you when you get into that walking pace where you're walking the entire time and you're doing all the water obstacles, you know, that's you know, three millimeters, five millimeter. I would argue there's probably not that much of a difference um, besides the five yeah. millimeters is going to be heavier and it will be slightly warmer. But again, there are points, even when you have your thickest wetsuit on where you will be cold, there will be points when you'll be cold. You just have to just, just not be weak about it, right? It's just like, <laughs> I'm cold. I will, I will. Move a little more aggressively and I will warm up or as the water dries off, I will warm up and I will be fine. It is not a life threatening uh, injury or, you know, I'm not I'm not on the verge of hypothermia at this point. As someone who's competitive, I think having those those options is really great. Um, It allows you to like really fine tune things. Uh, That being said, if you're not going to be running a lot of it, uh, I think a lot of those options end up becoming pretty unnecessary. Like you'll go from like I'm cold all right, let me put on a neoprene top. And then you'd be like, okay, now I'm really cold. Like I'll, I'll put on the full <laughs> wetsuit. So I think, I think when we can talk after the race, but I think you'll end up jumping over a lot of those options where you'll go from like neoprene top to like full wetsuit. Right. Um, Personally that a lot of times I will do, I do, I you shirtless? I do a Neptune shirt for a lap. And then I, I start blade running at that point where I, I start getting like uncomfortably cold and people are like, are you sure you're not going to have to go to the hospital where I'll I'll put on like the shorty for a lap or I'll put on uh, like a neoprene top for a lap and then the shorty for a lap and then switch into my full. Uh, to me, the, the, those intermediate steps allow you to squeeze out another lap running. Um, but if you're not running, you know, having a, having a swim run wetsuit to me is like almost, it's almost not worth it. Right. Cause Yeah. By the time you need that, if you're not running, you're going to be too cold anyway. So
1: yeah, I had a a
0: lot of options. Uh, I would make sure um, in my book, I recommend, I I know you didn't buy these, but I try to recommend buying different color things. So when you tell your pit crew that you want the green wetsuit, there's no doubt in their mind, which is like my green wetsuits, a swim run one, uh, as opposed to them, like, digging out multiple wetsuits and then they're holding like five black wetsuits up of varying thickness and varying sizes and lengths. And, you know, the swim run goes on with the zipper up front and the most wetsuits go on with the zipper up back. So you don't, you don't get confused in the middle of the uh, race. You yeah. Prefer- that's
1: good feedback. Make sure your pit crew knows what the equipment is primarily for the wetsuits. Cause those will be like minor on hangers, which I think I'm going to keep them in that way, but yeah. Make sure AC knows what, which one is, which. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, I'm not like I said, I was already planning to buy the two piece wetsuit and the vest. So I just bought it anyways, even though a friend gave me some. So the things that he gave me were essentially just a bonus. Um, But you brought up how like people are concerned for you for how cold you are kind of pretty early on. And I did. I watched the uh, 2021 Mud Gear video of World's Toughest. I watched that last week and you were still out there shirtless. (laughs) Well, there were other people in the video in full blown, probably five millimeter wetsuits, and you're like going through obstacles next to them, shirtless. Yeah. So <laughs> that kind of cracked me up. But yeah, I mean, it depends on the speed, how much body heat you're right. uh, you're developing, and then that was like you talked about how you're adding a layer each time or adding a different piece of gear. And I had that thought as well, which is why I still wanted the two piece. So if I could just grab the top real quick and even just run one lap with that, um, makes it a little bit easier. Um, so yeah, it,
0: cool. It, if you're cold, like if you're out there and you're cold for it, it's you' you won't go into hypothermia being cold for a single lap. I'll, if you're moving at a decent pace, I'll say that, right so um obviously every person's gonna have to make their own decision. I'll tell you again from personal experience, uh, I started Ranger school in the uh, in March in twenty two thousand way back five here and i I remember shaking the entire night like because I was cold and we weren't moving. We were just sitting in a patrol base in the woods, right? And I, I remember shaking. So like, I don't want to encourage people to get cold weather injuries, but there's a there's a line with like, hey, I'm uncomfortable and I'm cold. And then there's this big gap. And then there's like, I have hypothermia. I need to go see the medic, right? And there's this big gray area in between. And you can operate in that gray area for a fairly long time um, before you have to go see the medic and actually get pulled from the course. So, um, for those who are competitive and like riding that line, which I do, that is what I do. Uh, again, I, I caveat that with, you know, you're an adult, you have to make your own decisions and, um, you know, be smart for what you think your body is capable of handling. So
1: good feedback. Yeah. Okay. So on the kind of, kind of on the wetsuit topic, I don't know. Um, so Evan, I know you do not wear typically, uh, from what I've seen in some videos recently, you don't wear something over your wetsuit, but I will see a lot of probably more so, uh, open waivers wear windbreaker type pants and, or shirts over top of their wetsuit. And Jason Rulo talked about it in his series as well, that if you have that extra layer on the outside, you're getting that, keeping that warmth inside Uh, What are your thoughts on that? Especially considering like the walking technique.
0: Yeah, I think it's a good technique. Uh, I'm just, I've done it before. I don't usually do it. I I've used the windbreaker. I think I used it at 2018 uh, when things were getting iced over and and I was running a teammate uh, with Wesley. Um, I, I, I generally don't like, I don't like extra fabric. I don't like, like just like fabric rubbing against me and you know, stuff like that. So to me, Did it make me a little bit warmer? Maybe, I think so. Uh, But I didn't feel like there was a significant change in warmth. Uh, I I tend to focus more on like getting a dry set of like a dry hat every lap. To me, that's like my that's like my go to like nice dry hat. And usually, the first mile of the course is there's no water. That's not true every year, but occasionally you can get it even further where. I wear a dry hat for the first mile or two. And then there's a couple of water obstacles where your head doesn't go under. So your hat stays dry still. And then occasionally there's like an obstacle where your whole body goes under, but I usually take my hat off and I'll stuff it down the front of my wetsuit. um, And it it won't absorb as much water depending on how long and how deep the water obstacle is. Sometimes it can actually come out relatively dry, if not completely dry. um, And then it allows me a dry hat. Yeah.
1: Does that mean you have like 10... hats or something
0: i do i've got i've gotten free hats over the last i don't know decade (laughs) from all sorts of you know army recruiters and whatever you know i obviously i've bought a couple and you know anytime you go to like a thing where they're giving away free stuff you know and sometimes the same thing with buffs i've got so many buffs and so many hats uh most of which i did not pay for
2: gotcha all right a question that i had is you know, if you're dealing with an athlete that might have had a previous injury or something, at what point do you recognize that maybe you need to quit giving so much tough love and that your athlete, you know, your athlete's saying, hey, I I want to drop out. Yeah. When do you kind of make the decision? Yeah, you probably really do need to drop that because, you know, you don't want to be the guy that's like, oh, yeah, sure, go ahead and quit because you're there to push them, but at the same time, you don't want them, you know, tearing an IT band, tearing a, you know, having Achilles tend to, you know, any type of uh, injury that's going to end the rest of their season and into the next year.
0: Yeah, you know, that's a, that's a hard question, and it's really going to vary by person, by situation, by injury, uh, by personal background, right? Like the for 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 me and for a lot of people, World Stuff is mutters the last race of the season, right? So if I do something stupid to myself and hurt myself a little bit less of a big deal because I have several months to recover before my next event. I also have health insurance. So I'm a little less concerned uh, about doing something stupid to myself because I know I'll, I'll be taken care of uh, thanks to the army that just like some of the other conversations we've talked about earlier, is just, I think that's a conversation you need to have beforehand on talking about like, um, Hey, I've had this previous injury, you know uh, this could be a possible race ender. If um, you know, I start, Start seeing some serious damage to my body. Right. I, I will say, like, I tend, to, I try, I try to give this advice out because I feel like sometimes it's bad. I I go until I physically can't move anymore, or I have blacked out, or the race is over. Um, <laughs> I think, my, I like, I don't like telling people that, but then they're like, oh, and I kept going and I got hypothermia and you know broke my pelvis and you know and be like, oh geez. Um, so I try not to like. Overtly tell people that, but that's like the mindset I have going in. So, it, at the end of the day, it's a it's a personal decision, and you're um, just gonna have to weigh the consequences. I'll say that at some point during every ultra, my feet hurt. Right, so I I, I hear people right. all the Oh, I I stopped because I was worried I was getting a stress fracture on my foot. Yeah, you know, like running sixty plus miles is gonna make your feet hurt. I don't care what yeah. shoes you have. Like that's part of the pain. Um, And, you know, like, I've done some really stupid distances and really uh, pushed my body, and I I have not had any stress fractures in my lower limbs. Uh, I also eat healthy, though, and spend some time recovering. So, uh, again, personal decision you're going to have to make on the spot.
2: Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, because when I did Leaky Hourglass, and then, again, at the last uh, trail run I did I I, listen, I heard it on a podcast, don't never decide to quit while you're sitting in the pit. You know, always decide that out on the trail, but out on the, out at Leaky, I got to the point where I physically could not run my, in my interior groin muscles were yeah, uh, cramping up and, and I knew I was done. And of course, then I didn't make the time cut off and that was the end of the race, but that was a decision, you know, I basically ran until I couldn't and I did not, you know, I did, once I got in the pit, I didn't let myself make the decision to, throwing the towel then
0: I decided to keep going. So you went back uh, out for one more lap and then you didn't make the time cutoff. Is that what happened ultimately? Yeah,
2: yeah. I yeah when I was on the the last lap I actually completed with time, I was in the pit and I'm like, I don't know how this one's gonna go, but I'm gonna go out and do it anyway. And if I time out, I time out. And
0: right.
2: um I was, you know, with leaky hourglass the time is each lap is one minute shorter than the previous one and it's a hillier terrain than i'm used to and so i had to push pretty hard and yeah on that last lap that i dnf'd it was it was a i started having the cramps and the, the muscle spasms and i was like okay i'm going to keep pushing it but i'm not i know i'm not going to make time and so yeah. it, that's how it ended
0: yeah but i know i give you credit for going back out and trying for one more that's a uh, uh, takes a lot of heart takes a lot of grit and if anyone's not sure we're talking about leaky hourglass Ultra is the last man standing ultra run by Gary Shaw, a member of strength and speed. We've had him on the podcast before, uh, is registration open for next year. I believe it is. I believe it it is. Okay. So you can search for them on Facebook, leaky hourglass ultra or shoot strength and speed a message. If you can't find them and we'll connect you with Gary Shaw and get you signed up for that race in the middle of Missouri question mark. Yes. (laughs) Okay. Thank you. What did your, what did your career? I got a couple other questions. Yep. Um,
2: what did your crew do that made a just made a really huge difference? You know, that you felt like you were supported and helped you get through the race. Now I know your crew's your dad, but yeah. So does he do anything special that kind of really give you that extra push?
1: Yeah, or any sort of other tips and tricks for pit crew and pit crew members.
0: Yeah. So the most of my pit is planned out ahead of time, right? So every lap I have a lap bag. This is what I'm eating this lap. There's almost no variation. Uh, the things they did that kind of, I I think for me made a difference was on the races when it was really cold. So normally I drink Perpetuum. It's a fat carb protein blend by Hammer Nutrition. And that's what I feel with most of the race. So every time I come through the pit, I'm like chugging half to a full bottle of one of those or heed on the really cold races. The bottles actually got really cold because they were air temperature, right? So they're almost 32 degrees. So they're almost frozen. So when I'm drinking a 32 degree liquid, it's making me colder, Mm. Um, And one of the things my pit did, uh, they started keeping the bottles like against their body. So like on the interior of their jackets. So it was a little bit warmer and or sometimes they used actually hot water from the uh, hospitality tent that was nearby and mixed that in a little bit. So it wasn't quite cold. It wasn't hot liquid because that would be weird for Perpetuum because it's like a has like a milky texture. Um, But they kept they kept those warm for me. Um, which helped keep me warm, and then on top of that, so I have two sets of blag mitts. I have the mitt lights, and I have the blag mitt extremes. Um, in between laps, a lot of times I change bleg mitts. Most laps I change bleg mitts, and when I change bleg mitts, they would take them, dry them with a paper towel or or a towel, and then they would take hand warmers and they'd throw them inside the bleg mitts and just let them sit there, or and or put them against their body so those heat up. Uh, that way, when I put them on, I'm putting on warm gloves instead of cold gloves. And other than that, it's just everything else is pretty much pre-planned. Like I know I'm getting a warm, I know I'm getting a dry hat every lap. I know I'm getting uh, certain food every lap, and then everything else is kind of on on the moment, reacting to my uh, requests. Uh, so last year it was really great. We had uh, Jamie Simmons, one of the strength and speed people, and her husband were out on course actually, like with a radio, and they would radio stuff back in. And we actually didn't plan this, but I, I saw uh, Brian, our husband, on course, and I started yelling instructions to him, and he started radioing it back so my pit crew would have that stuff ready. Um, okay. Which is a pretty cool uh, technique that I've never used before, but I they I had heard that they were gonna do it because I'm friends with both of them, and when I saw them on course, I just started yelling at them, <laughs> and <laughs> they started following instructions from like a you know mostly naked guy running in very cold weather, uh giving them instructions on what neoprene uh top I wanted to put on next. So those are the yeah. big ones that come to mind. Uh other than that, some of the like the the things I'd say is if you ever change shoes or change wetsuits or something like that and you need to take off your shoes, um, being able to like physically untie your shoes as a pit crew for your athlete is was really good because your finger dexterity is just not super there and like bending over to like untie your shoes is kind of a pain in the butt. So yeah. so that was nice. Um, and then just having, uh, you know, being kind of on the, on responsive with requests. So, you know, everyone's yeah. a little bit different. Some people want to be like massaged between laps or any, stuff like that. So, you know, just taking care of your athlete and realize that kind of like they're the priority and you are uh second fiddle at that point. You were, you were oh, there as a yeah. sport. Absolutely.
1: So talk me through a little bit about putting on the wetsuit. So I tried on some pants the other day and they're pretty tight. I had to like lay on my back on the ground and like try to shimmy my legs in. Now they didn't fit. So that that was part of the problem. But, you know, I imagine after hours of being on course, it's going to be tricky. So what kind of advice do you have for for putting the wetsuit on? Like, do you sit down on the floor in a chair or like, how does that work for you?
0: I usually do a combination of standing and sitting in a chair. So the the big okay. tip I'd say is one make sure that wetsuit's prepped ahead of time so it's unzipped uh the it's it's open wherever it needs to be open or un unvelcroed whatever it is. Uh with my vel- with my wetsuit I pack four plastic bags and I put I take off my shoe, my two shoes, step into two plastic bags, just the cheap ones you can buy from or you get from like Target or Walmart type thing and I mm-hmm. put two on my hands and that's how I get my hands and legs into the wetsuit. They just the plastic bags will just slide through the inside and allow you to get your body into the wetsuit. At that oh, point, wow. it becomes a kind of a shimmy, like people are pulling on the wetsuit, and uh, you're kind of jumping around, shaking until you can get it all the way on. With, with it being wet, you tend to stick to it a little bit more, um, which is why the plastic bags help. But uh, at some point, it's just a lot of like pulling and tugging until you get the zipper uh, all the way up. Okay. The I've plastic bag that. thing is money, though. I I swear by that. 100%. If you're not doing that, you're missing out on I mean you're you're exerting way more effort than you need to. And and sometimes the plastic bags will like I've ripped part of them and like I think part of them has been hanging out at the bottom of my wetsuit or um you know sometimes you rip them when you pull them out. It's it's fine. It it'll it'll either be stuck on in the inside of your wetsuit or it'll be, you know, it'll be gone. So
1: Okay, so I don't have a specific question about the lap box, but I wouldn't mind elaboration and I feel like people should hear because I've read your book, so yeah. I know about your lap box, and I think it'd be good for you to highlight that just for the podcast.
0: Yeah, no, good one. Uh, I, I don't think I've ever talked about it on the podcast, so that's a good one. The So lap box, so th- I bring my food in a plastic container. That's all has all my powders and gels and stuff like that, and everything's ziplocked into baggies. They're organized. Once I get to the race, all that stuff is taken out, and now I have an empty plastic box that sits right outside the tent. So whenever I come in for a clothing change, etc. cetera, I Anything I take off, um, I put into that lap box. So my headlamp goes in there. My bib will go in there. Um, uh, If I'm changing, like sometimes like the watch won't fit through the wetsuit or sometimes I'm changing watches. I typically have to change watch once in the middle of the night uh, because I don't have a 24-hour continuous run battery. That goes into the lap box. Put on the wetsuit and then the lap box has to be empty before you step on the course. So you know you know you're getting your watch back. You know you're getting your headlamp back. You know you're getting your tail blinker. You know you're getting your bib, and most importantly, you know you're getting your timing chip back. You 100 percent know because it, everything that goes into that box comes out of that box. So when you leave that box, is completely empty. Um, and I, I know that because from personal experience, I started a lap once with um, without my timing chip in my very first race, and I had to uh, run back for it. I know Jenny did the same thing in 20 last year and they were like you can't go back for it you have to complete the lap which makes literally no sense because essentially you're technically still in the pit uh but that's what they the the person told her whatever official race official so she had to follow the race official's instructions so she ended up doing technically she officially she did 90 miles last year um she did 95 miles uh according to her gps watch though
1: yeah. So elaborate on that or I'm going to so they did a podcast after that or there was some sort of interview or something and The rule was you have to be walking along the course path 100% of the time. So by the time Jenny had realized or asked about the timing chip being missing, they had told her the only way to go back was along the course. So she could choose to go backwards or forwards. But at that point, she was already more than halfway. So it just made sense to continue forward. So I guess her the main complaint was like she couldn't cut through just like the spectator loop. Um, Gotcha. Gotcha. So that was kind of the crummy part that like, you're not even officially on the course and you can't take a shortcut, but that would look no different than an athlete with a timing chip, you know, cutting through the middle of the course. So, but yeah, so they had talked about that a little bit. Gotcha. Okay. So I'm trying to make a, um, what would I call this a pace? And time calculator, so I did this for a couple of my ultras um to see where I was on track, or you know, if you're trying to aim for a PR, especially for like a looped course, it's pretty easy to know if you're on pace or if you're behind. Um, so I'm sure this is a pretty standard thing that most people do. Um, do you have some sort of format that you follow, and is that something that you'd be willing to like share with the community? Yeah.
0: I've tried it before for world's toughest. It becomes really messy really quickly because, you know, the first couple of laps, not most of the obstacles are not open, and then obstacles open slowly, and then eventually all the obstacles open, and then it changes again. Once you put on a wetsuit, your pace is going to slow when you put on the wetsuit, right? So your your pacing effort for the same, even if you were doing even dead even splits pre and post wetsuit, the amount of effort you're exerting post wetsuit will be higher. That being said. We found from talking to people, uh, Jason Rulo and I, I can't remember, I think, I don't know, Jason came up with it or I came up with it and borrowed it from Jason. Uh, from talking to people, we found out that like what you've done at about 10 hours, 10, if you double that, that's about where you are when you finish the race. So if you hit, you know, 40 miles in the first 10 hours, then at 24 hours, you will likely be at 80. So I use the 10-hour mark as like my first kind of real checkpoint for like, hey, here's here's what I'm currently at. Here's what I think is a, a possible finishing point. Uh, obviously, that means you have to stay on course the whole time. You have to be, keep moving forward the whole time. Um, And then on top of that, it's not even always good to be like, well, I'm just going to run a very evenly paced, or evenly effort paced race. Because there's certain benefits to going a little bit faster in the beginning, unlike a normal ultra. Like going in a normal ultra and being like, well, I'm going to run faster at the beginning is like, that's not good, really good advice. Yeah. <laughs> but for a world's toughest model where the obstacles are opening slowly, like if I run a little, you know, staying well within my aerobic threshold, if I run a little bit faster, then yeah, I'm going to be able to pass a couple more obstacles that I may not be able to pass. And that saves a couple minutes. So... Bottom line, I, I use the 10-hour mark as my first kind of like checkpoint to kind of just see where I'm at. And I honestly run, for the first 10 hours, I'm just running whatever feels comfortable. Um, so if it's a lot of hilly, you know, maybe I'm, I'm walking a lot more than I, I would be normally. And if it's mostly flat, then maybe I'm just kind of cruising. I, at that 10-hour mark, I take note of where I am. Um, and then kind of from that point forward, I look at how many obstacles are open or I make sure all the, all the obstacles are open and I start paying attention to my my lap times. Hey, here's what I got at this time. Here's what, here's on the next lap. Here's what I got on the next lap. And then I basically use that as my benchmark to compare myself to myself. So I'm a little less concerned about what other people are doing and more concerned about, all right, if I did the last lap in an hour 35, what was the next lap in? Because an hour 36, okay, I slowed down a little bit. Hour 34, okay, I improved a little bit. You know, And I, I kind of, Monitor based off that, and that way, I'm basically for most of the race, I'm I'm pacing off myself, kind of racing myself, and then really only those last couple of hours. At that point, am I like, okay, what's my placement? What's my age group placement? And then we start pushing it and seeing where I can where I can go and uh, try to make up some ground. And you know, you use some caffeine again. Caffeine proven performance enhancing um, thing, right? Like it it works. It reduces rate of perceived exertion. So mm-hmm. I kind of, I try to save that for the second half of the race. So I, I will not take caffeine before the 12 hour mark hard, hard no on that, uh, because most people's paces are already too fast for the first 12 hours. There's no need to exacerbate the problem by taking caffeine. And, um, mm-hmm. and then at some point you have to come down off the caffeine mm-hmm. high, right? So like, if you take it six hours in, you're going to be coming down in the middle of the race and you don't want to be doing that, especially when you need it in the middle of the night or when your body's hurting. Yeah. That makes sense. Okay, so, uh, so
1: I feel like you're saying you don't really worry about a p- pace calculation beforehand. You're more so just going into it with, a, you know, do what I can, be comfortable, run comfortably. And then from there, just kind of push the pace to what you feel. I don't know. You're just listening to your body. You're not really doing a whole lot of um, like analysis into like where you are, or what you can get. You're just trying to give it your all every loop.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I know going in, I'll do the math to be like. 100 mile pace equals this, you know, this hour, this how many minute and hour lap or hour and minute laps. And 75 mile pace equals this, you know, hour minute laps, just so I have those numbers in my head. Um, yeah. as my pace starts slowing and being like, okay, well now as I slow down, you know, I, I, I would need to have banked X amount of time to be able to, yeah. to maintain that pace. But yeah. So yeah. you talk
1: about like how, you know, your pace is going to slow down and the pit times. And like, I understand all that can make it really complex and difficult to prepare for things. And what's funny is AC, I'm, uh, you and I have talked about this before. AC and I both use a lot of Excel. So sometimes we nerd out about silly formulas and things. Um, <laughs> so when I did my last ultra and I was trying to PR... I did like, I looked at the, I did the same course more than once. So I looked at like my previous year's time and laps and I said, okay, my first lap was a a less like a 10 and a half minute pace. And then my next lap was 13 and a half minute pace. And then my third lap was 14 minute pace. So I kind of plugged those numbers in into the loops. And then Mm. I looked at my pit times. I calculated all those. So like I did gauge or like I already accounted for like slowing down. Um, But just to kind of see, like, where should I be at certain times? Because for me, I feel like that'll give me that extra push. Um, Like if I'm in the pit at whatever time it is, right? And it's like, hey, you're falling off. You're like three minutes shy of your 50-minute goal, which already accounts for you going slower from here on out. But that would help me maybe be a little more motivated to like, hey, if you do a quick pit this time, you're back on track. Right. Um, So I don't know, I feel like I need kind of some of those little mind games to keep going versus Evan, it sounds like you're just so mentally tough. I feel like that, like, you don't need those. Like, you don't need to play mind games with yourself. You know what you're doing. Um, I have to find ways to motivate myself because a lot of the times I don't know why I'm doing what I'm doing or why I want to finish or whatever. So I don't know. I need these little things that like you need to save three minutes to get back on track to meet your goal. And I'm like, oh, okay.
2: My goal, yeah, right? That,
1: that matters. Yeah.
2: And, I, and I'm already planning to track her, track your pit times and your, you know, your lap times. If nothing else, just for my own interest, but, but also to keep you, all right, hey, you, you're, you're spending too long on the pit. You need to leave. So. Yeah. yeah. yeah
0: is- at the, At the end of the day, what, um, we were talking about about this at work for uh, random military schools, but in the middle of the race, you will hit a point where you're like, "This is a terrible idea. This was stupid. I don't know why I'm doing this." <laughs> Motivation isn't what keeps you going. It's discipline is what keeps you going. Is the fact that you cross the line? You said, "I'm going to do this until I hit 24 hours." That the, the discipline is what is what people people need, and that's what can bring you to the end. It's not like you're not going to be like, "Oh." man, the, that orange headband is going to be so good. Or the black headband is what they typically give out for the 24 hour. They usually give it orange for people who don't do uh, the full 24. Um,
1: I don't know, man. I need a little extra something. But
0: <laughs> I, I'm so After the race, when you get the black headband, you'll be like, yeah, this is what I worked for. But in the middle <laughs> of the race, you're going to be like, I'll just settle for the orange." you know, like, yeah. It's the it's like, I
1: don't give a crap about a black headband who needs that anyways. Right. Yeah. All right. um, Do you wear knee print socks?
0: uh, Yeah, make sure you account for slowing and make sure you account for the first couple of laps are going to be way faster than they should be.
1: Yeah. Do you go and look at like last year's times and pits and things like that to try to analyze like where you could save? No. Or um, I guess that's what kind of what I would plan to do is like, look at last year's it's really cool how they have like the pit times and the lap times all segregated. So maybe look at some athletes that did 50 miles and compare them to see like, okay, what were their paces like at the start versus halfway versus at the end to use that, to try to gauge approximately where I should be.
0: I have, I have not done that. What I do know is like the guy, I know the guys who generally finish around my placement, um, a plus or plus or minus couple spots. And if I'm ahead of people who normally are finishing on the podium, I, I'm like, well, I am going too fast. I'm going to slow down even if I don't feel like – like I will purposely slow down so I'm behind them. Even if it's only like 50 feet, I was like, I'll just slow down because I'm going too fast. And um, so I do I do pace off of other people based off of kind of where they're at. And then for pit times, my pit times are, are as short as as I physically can make them. Your like pits I, are
1: like two minutes. I looked at your times last year. They're insane.
0: And that includes, that includes like the hundred meter walk from start to finish. Yeah. Right. I so it, I'm actually, I'm actually standing next to my dad and my pit crew for 10 to 30 <laughs> seconds at most. Like it's, yeah, it may even that's- be shorter. I don't, I don't know. I, I go get, get what I need, exchange what I need, switch headlamps or whatever. And then I'm, I'm I back out and but, I have two, yeah, two sets right. of headlamps. So we, I I literally give them the old one with the old batteries and I grab the new one and put it on my head, right? So there's not, I'm not changing batteries right there. The batteries have have been changed before I got there.
1: And you do that every loop you switch your head lamp. Correct. And with fresh batteries.
0: Correct. Because if I've spent a couple hundred dollars to get to the race, hotels, race entry, gear, what's another, what's another $5 for fucking, excuse my bad language. What's another $10 for batteries? You know, you're like, are you re- is this really the point you're going to choose to save money on the batteries? When your headlamp is <laughs> dimmer, you will subconsciously take smaller steps, which means you are moving at a slower pace, which means you are not extending your stride appropriately. When your headlight is yeah. you are confident, you know where where your foot's going, you know what there's going to be solid ground there, so you will take bigger, more confident strides.
1: Yeah, I think during one of my ultras, I either got a a pacer or I changed my headlight and batteries finally, and it was like. 4am or something i don't know and then it was like holy crap that thing was dim like you don't realize it because it dims slowly but dims
0: slowly and you you get used to it your eyes start adjusting to the darkness yeah
1: yeah and even worse is like in that one that i did like i really didn't see other people um it was like a lollipop course so you went out and when you were on that big long loop all by yourself like for Mm. most for most of the night. So that made it hard too. I didn't even have other people passing me with bright headlamps.
0: Yeah, that is rough. <clears throat> that's a little more if anyone ever does an ultra, there's not even many left. If if there's any uh if, there, if you do ever do a 24-hour OCR, that's not world's toughest or Spartan. That's what it's like. It's like the real ultra feeling where it's like, "Cool, I haven't seen anyone in like an hour and a half and uh I'm climbing over walls that are like 8 feet off the ground. I hope I don't fall." <laughs> yeah it's a different type of adventure you
1: you said something a minute ago um that you have your like lapped items that you want at the beginning of every loop and i know for you that is perpetual but i'm planning to follow the same kind of thing i struggle to eat a lot i get pretty nauseous um i'm not i don't have any sort of appetite but i can drink so perpetual works great for me as well i've done that uh for some ultras and that actually has made a big difference for me um a lot of the times on my ultras, like I can't even eat breakfast. I'm so nervous. And even just on race day in general, I can't eat breakfast. So Perpetuum has been, um, it is like an endurance carb thing, but I'll even have some, if I just have like a 10 mile race or something, or even a six mile, like if I'm desperate for calories, I'll, I'll just drink some Perpetuum too. So yeah, I like that. But you also said that you have like a standard, I think you might've even said you timed the bags or something to said like loop one, loop two, loop three. What is in your standard set?
0: Good. So I have uh, Ziploc bags. Like you said, they're labeled one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, all the way up to 20. Cause I always plan on doing 20 laps. Uh, I usually get 18, Um, but I label them up to 20, you know, positive thoughts going in, uh, setting high goals. And inside the bag, there's two gels. Typically Uh, I usually start the, I usually carry four to the start line. I eat one on the start line and then I have three gels in my uh, in my spy belt, the little expandable pouch that goes on my hip. Um, and I eat two per lap so I, I replace two every lap. That third one that sits in my spy belt for almost the entire race is like my emergency one. It's a psychological blanket. I keep it there because if I'm having a really bad time or like crash real hard, that's gonna be what I'm gonna what I'm gonna eat to kind of bring me back out of it. Um, I think I've used it almost never, <laughs> but I still keep it because it's like breaking case of emergency. So inside the Ziploc bags are two gels, Hammer Nutrition gels, again, st- keeping the caffeine for the second half of the race. Uh, there is EnduroLite's Extreme. It is an electrolyte pill that Hammer Nutrition makes. And then there's something called Anti-Fatigue Caps, also a Hammer Nutrition product, it's supposed to buffer lactic acid. and supposed to help with endurance. So those are the four, and I think there's two anti-fatigue caps per bag, um, and then uh, and
1: those are like swallowable pills.
0: Correct, those are pills. Yeah. So, so your so, only
1: nutrition is two gels and a. What are you doing? Like one scoop of Perpetuum.
0: I do. I do two scoops of Perpetuum. Every lap I, I come through, there's a bottle with two scoops of Perpetuum, and a bottle with two scoops of Heat. I will drink anywhere between you know, a heft of one bottle to a, a bottle and a half. Um, so I just go and I just chug a bunch until I feel good enough, essentially. So sometimes, especially in the hotter weather, I'll I'll usually go a little more towards heat and then in the colder weather, I typically go more towards Perpetuum. Um, but I will just go in and I, I, I chug a bunch. Uh, if I'm really trying to make up time, I'll start jogging towards the, uh, the start line. And then toss the bottle, or sometimes I even carry the bottle onto the course with me for the first uh, couple hundred yards. There's usually a trash can uh, at some point on the course uh, towards the beginning because they know people are carrying food onto the course. So,
1: you, I think I've seen video and it looks like you don't take a hydration pack.
0: Correct. I do not. I I wore a hydration
1: pack. You're chugging a bottle each lap.
0: Yeah. I I wore a hydration pack and I think uh, 14, 15. I think 16 might've been the last time I wore a hydration pack. I can't remember if I wore it in 16. Uh, But basically I found based off the paces I do, um, the hydration pack is just more weight for me to carry. So I stopped carrying it. And um, I do stop at the water station midway. I think uh, stopping at the water station midway is better because then I'm not physically carrying that extra weight across obstacles and while I'm running. And I, I take an extra minute there and chug some water, eat a gel or two and then continue on my way. So uh, now weather whether will also dictate that, right? So if it's a really hot day, you know, maybe the hydration pack would be better um, with the amount of liquid I'm drinking in the pit. And then my pit times, i mean sorry, my lap times. And then the, them having a water stop on course um, I do not feel the need to carry a water pack.
1: Gotcha. Yeah. I am not going to go that route. I am very happy. Sometimes I'll even wear my hydration pack for, like an eight mile run or something. I like to stay high. Hide- well, I also live in Texas. So, you know, yeah. even nowadays, like it's 90 degrees outside. So I just like to have water. I don't really want it to be an option. So, um, yeah, I don't know. It's a little crazy to me because I feel like probably 95% of the people out there, if not more than that, are going to be wearing hydration packs, probably like 98. And then you've got like Evan and Trevor Psychos or something. <laughs>
0: uh uh we're starting to run out of time any any kind of final questions you want to ask before we wrap it up burning
2: anymore.
1: do you wear neoprene socks
0: i do not wear neoprene socks uh someone said on the uh world's toughest motor community page um when you wear neoprene socks and then you pee, which most people do, just they just go, uh, your pee goes into your socks and then you got pee balloons on your feet. So I do not wear <laughs> neoprene socks. Uh, I've worn them before in the past. I just don't think they, I don't think they keep, I think marginally keep my feet warmer and they are heavy and they add more weight to the distal end, which is the far end of your body, which is more costly for energy production. So I don't, I don't wear neoprene socks.
1: Okay. Um, you would layer couple socks
0: i just go one pair of socks oh my Um, gosh
1: you just have freezing toes you have numb toes the whole time
0: pretty much yeah so my my fingertips and toe tips will typically go numb for anywhere between a day to several weeks after the race uh i have not done permanent damage that i'm aware of um (laughs) and i uh yeah I, i again i don't know what the temperature will be in texas this year i don't i suspect it will not be as bad as it was last year
1: that's
2: my hope I'm actually yeah. sitting here. I've got the the like the last 10 years of temperatures high and low. There was one year where the low temperature was seventy two degrees. <laughs> uh but it seems like it averages around uh mid forties to upper fifties, and that's the low temperature. Okay. So you're talking about a high temperature of in the anywhere from the upper seventies to uh lower sixties.
0: Yeah. The the hardest part, uh, like last year, was hard because the weather kept changing, so you couldn't kind of stick with the same outfit. You had to constantly adjust. So to me, last year, even though it got a little bit colder in Atlanta that one year, um, to me, Atlanta was, to me, last year was one of the harder temperature year-wise, just because of the constant change, um, and the the temperature differentiation between day and night will also affect how people feel, right? If it's if it's really hot during the day and then it drops a lot at night, it's gonna make you feel colder than it is if it you know, was, you know, 65 degrees at night in during the day, and then it dropped to 60 at night, it's not going to feel the change won't feel as drastic to your body.
1: All right. I think that pretty yeah. much covers my main questions.
0: Cool. Yeah. And if anyone has, again, if anyone has any further questions, I highly recommend picking up my ultra OCR Bible. Like I literally, I wrote that because I don't have time to physically go around and answer everyone's questions all the time. So Please pick that up. If anyone picks it up and still has like a question or two and wants to shoot me a message, feel free to do that. Um, if you want like constant consultation, uh, I do that for some people. Uh, I I do charge a little bit of money for that because I just don't have that much time in the day uh, to do stuff like that. But um, that is also available if you're someone who wants like constant feedback and has a lot of questions specifically uh, that the books you feel like the books not answering, but you uh, your personal situation requires more attention. So yeah, yeah uh, we covered a
1: lot of stuff that was in your book and like I asked a lot of questions that kind of already uh were in there, but it's always nice to have that verbal conversation, like you can elaborate a little bit more. So
0: yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So cool. We're gonna get going. Uh any final shout-outs you want to give? Uh start off with AC. Um
2: yeah. uh, just shout out to Strength and Speed, KCOCR. Um Everybody who Mythic Race uh in April and the last absolute last Conquer the Gauntlet in September.
0: And good. good ones. Come out to Tulsa if anyone wants to experience Conquer the Gauntlet and have their one more shot at Pegatron. I have a lot of people that are saying they want to try it, you know. Hardest yeah, obstacle in OCR.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Miranda. Uh yeah, uh Mudgear, cannibal Race um evan i want to shout you out you're always uh leading our team you do a lot lot for the team behind the scenes so i appreciate that thanks for having me on the podcast we've got a lot of sponsors i can't remember them all i know we've got uh why is the only one i can think of like fat grips uh it's good we don't tape. shout them
0: out enough anyway
1: yeah we oh. really don't but yeah rock tape i use their stuff a lot um aurora oh yeah i use gear. their jackets all the time yep
0: yeah. Uh, OCR Buddy, Obstacle Running Adventures, Leg Mitt, Strength and Speed, Volition Chiropractic, Juice Performer. Uh, this the ones off the top of my head I can think of. I'm looking at an old jersey in my office.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Evan.
0: <laughs> so, uh, well, yeah, th- this year actually was a little bit lighter on the sponsor year. I just uh, just a lot of busy didn't quite have as much time to reach out to people, uh, hopefully yeah. pick it up next year
1: all right hey real quick let's close out with are you going to world's toughest motor this year
0: me of course
1: all right just checking this is i hadn't actually asked you that so uh,
0: yeah this might be my final year as an individual i'm not sure or at least like my final competitive elite year as an individual we'll kind of see uh changing career paths next year and uh, i'll be living on the east coast so a whole lot of changes so i just don't know how much time um, I will be willing to put in uh, into endurance obstacle course racing at that point. And I feel like by next year, I've hit most of my major goals for racing and um, not that I'm going to retire, but I will, I will drastically dial the amount of races I do back. So uh, speaking of races and not dialing back, uh, have you heard about the Saudi Arabia Tough Motor Infinity?
1: briefly i saw that chris roglowski posted about it posted about going and then finally committed to world's toughest mutter again so yeah, yeah that's exciting it also i think i saw rylan Shadegg signed up so we've already got some big names going there so that'll be exciting to watch i hope they have some good live coverage
0: yeah so it should be the biggest prize purse in ocr history ever and guaranteed prize purse not like hey if someone does x <laughs> y or we i'll give you a, a billion dollars it's like here's what we're giving for first second third fourth fifth sixth etc um, so it should be a really cool event i'm first sure it'll bring place. out some great european racers uh, you'll see some middle eastern racers you'll see american racers it should be it should be it should feel like ocr in its uh, heyday of uh, popularity again so i'm excited for it i'm currently planning on going out although i have not actually uh, committed anything at this point but i'm currently planning on attending
1: Cool. Yeah. Love to see you compete out there.
0: Yeah. All right. We're going to take off. Thanks again for coming on and we will see you in a couple of weeks. Thanks,
1: Evan. See you there.
2: Thanks.